I don't give a green light to illicit drugs. Well, have you not. ever smoked pot? No. Have you ever used any illicit drugs? No. What Show me the bag, I'll blow on it. <laughs> happy, ha happy to. Um, the treasurer says he's happy to take a drug test. Yeah, get the swab. <laughs> Is it on? Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr. Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait. It it is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to the Budget 2017 episode of Is It On? BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast. My name is Alice Workman. Sitting across the desk from me, Mark Stefano. Mark, fairness, opportunity and security... They were the buzzwords that we learnt from the Treasurer this week. How was, uh, how was your impressions of the budget? All I know is that there are better days ahead. There are better days and they're in the future. What do we have in store for this chock-a-block budget edition? Mate, we've got a huge podcast this week. We will be chatting to Federal Treasurer Scott Morrison. We'll also be hitting up the man named the world's best treasurer, who's still currently a backbench politician. That's former Labor Treasurer Wayne Swan and Mark We've also got a special little guest for Bin Juice at the end of the podcast. A guest for Bin Juice. A guest for Bin Juice. You've been working overtime this week, <laughs> Alice Workman. Bin Juice is our, um, our segment where we like to throw some light onto things that don't normally get enough light shone on it. And you've brought in a guest. I've brought in a guest. Who Green, do you have? Greens leader and doctor. Richard D. Natale. That's so exciting. Yeah. Now, normally at the start of the podcast, we'll do a fast five, wrapping up the the topics from the week, the main stories that have been around. But because it's budget week and there's just so much to get through, we're going to do a fast 15, but it's going to be super yeah. duper quick. I'm going to kick us off. Number one, the budget deficit, it's $29.4 billion, but Scott Morrison says we're on track to a surplus by 2020. Here's my first one. It's the $6 billion tax on the big not just four banks, big five banks, and they're not happy about it. So this is the big headline figure. You're going to see a lot more in the coming weeks. They went after the banks. Number three, the Medicare levy will go up by half a percent to fund the National Disability Insurance Scheme over the next 10 years. Wayne Swan will talk to us a bit later. He reckons the money was always there, and this one might have a little question mark over it. This is number four. There's a sexy new housing affordability scheme for young people where you get to salary sacrifice into a superannuation account and keep it on the sly, so away from the tax man. Um, the catch is you're going to only put in $15,000 each year and the cap is at $30,000. So a lot of people probably at home are thinking, $30,000? Is that enough to buy a deposit? Mm -hmm. no. <laughs> and Scott Morrison will obviously address this in the upcoming interview. Uh, but economists say that one of the things of the housing affordability is it might actually not help you out because house prices will probably just go up by 30 grand. Yeah. Anyway, there's also Maps. billions and billions, 75 billions, in fact, for infrastructure. So, Mark, that's the good debt that we talked about last week. So, airports, Snowy Hydro 2.0, and, of course, roads and rail. Number six, cuts to foreign aid. I'll go back into this for my bin juice, but $300 million slash from the foreign aid budget. Very, very sneaky freezing of indexation there. Number seven, thousands of people on welfare will be drug tested. Whoa. And if they test positive for marijuana, ice, ecstasy, or any other illegal drugs, they'll be put on a cashless welfare card and might be forced into treatment. Saucy. Okay, number eight, if you don't turn up to Centrelink appointments or job interviews, 
your doll will be cut for four weeks. And if you get offered a job and you don't take it, your doll will be cut for four weeks. Number 10, there's $115 million for mental health, which is a great thing for those people looking out for mental health issues in the budget. And a lot of money for suicide prevention, which is great. And number 11, the government are going to save $15 million by cutting the welfare of anti-vaxxers. So people who don't immunise their kids. People up in Byron Bay were screeching. You could hear them from the lockup. <laughs> number 12, the price of rollies is going up, which uh, is loose-leaf tobacco or hipster cigarettes. All those people who buy loose-leaf tobacco thinking, oh, you know, I need to save some money. I don't want to buy packet cigarettes. Ba-bow. Sorry. Unfortunately, the tax is now the same as packet cigarettes. Number 13, there's still $170 million hanging around for the same-sex marriage plebiscite. You're kidding. That we thought was gone in November. No. Guess what, guys? It's not only back, it never left. <laughs> it's in the budget, the plebiscite in the budget. Okay, number 14, the second last one. Tony Abbott's legacy has been scrapped. Official. That's $13 billion of quote-unquote zombie measures from the Abbott government's terrorizing 2014 budget. They've finally been ditched. There's been a line drawn underneath that whole legacy. And number 15, the final one, there was no mention of climate change, Mark, in the Treasurer's speech on Tuesday night. But to get into the nitty-gritty of Budget 2017, here's our chat with Tina Arena, mega fan, the number one ticket holder for the NRL Rugby League team, the Cronulla Sharks, it's Alice's chat with Federal Treasurer Scott Morrison. I'm joined now by Federal Treasurer Scott Morrison. Scott Morrison, welcome to BuzzFeed News. Pleased to be here. Or should I say this is the first informal meeting of the parliamentary friends of the Tina Arena fan That's club. That's it. That's it. That's absolutely. Um, there are others who are there, as we know, but they're not as out, out about it as we are. Did you use any Tina Arena songs to pump you up before the budget speech? Any Sorrento Moon or Chains? Uh, no, I, I love Chains, but um, I love Overload, Sympathy of Life. I, every time she plays, Jenny and I go along. It's a fantastic night. And I got to meet her after one of the last concerts that we went to. And I was like, you know... A teenager. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tina Rinna, if you've got any questions for the Treasurer, please feel free to hashtag ScoMo Live to us and we'll throw them at him. Well, Treasurer, just to recap over the last six months, we've had penalty rates go for weekend workers. We've had uni fees going up in this budget. Youth unemployment is high. Underemployment's at a 40-year high. Is the government waging a war on young people? No, absolutely not. I mean, we've, we've got the biggest package of, of funding for schools that we've seen, $18.6 billion, and, and finally doing it on a fair needs-based assessment. I mean, everyone should be on the same wicket when it comes to schools funding. And whether you're in a public school, whether you're in a private school, I mean, I went to public schools, Jenny and I both did, all, all the way through high school and in primary school. But whatever choices parents are making with their kids, uh, whatever education you're getting, uh, then it has to be on a, on a fair basis. And, uh, and when it comes to young people particularly trying to get into work, in fact, in last year's budget, I announced the Youth Path Program and that it was really trying... Which was passed by the Senate yesterday. Yeah, yeah and th- this was all about trying to get young people who had been more, more longer-term unemployed getting them over some of the, the, the big hurdles they have. I and mean, when we get it, if you've been out of work for a while, there are just some basic things you need with, with help to, to get into that first job and, and to make it stick and make it work. And it, that all came out of a, a program that I saw working really effectively down in the Illawarra. There was this wonderful group that were taking people. It started off just by meeting kids who were there at the food bank. And then they worked out, well, they've got difficulties getting jobs. And they started these pre-work training programs and I said that's what we've got to do and so I'm so pleased the Senate passed it, it means it's going national but in this budget we've done an extension for parents next and that's particularly for largely young mums. There are Mm -hmm. some young dads that are part of that 
but it's been a successful program linking them up to childcare support, understanding their education opportunities, helping them work through. I mean, if you're 18, you've got a young bub, I mean, you're at great risk of spending the rest of your life on welfare, unless you can make some choices that get you in a different direction, which includes education, training, mentoring, support, childcare. So we've expanded that to 20 more locations, um, you know, tens of thousands more places, and particularly in, in Indigenous communities, which are also you know, struggling with that challenge. Well, let's talk a bit about welfare. One of the big measures in the budget is mm. the drug testing of 5,000 people on Newstart and Youth mm. Allowance, and if people test positive, they'll be put on a cashless card. Mm. Now, this measure has been described as random, but the Department of Social Services says that they'll be using profiling and data and risk assessment to pick the people. So isn't it a more accurate description that you'll be picking 5,000 people who you suspect or know use drugs and drug testing them? Now, what this is, is a trial, number one. Yes. What we do as a government is if we've got an innovative idea, we'll try it out. In, in, in just a couple of communities. Now we did this with the cashless debit card, Alan Tunge did this, and we went into some particular communities uh, and we engaged with those communities. Uh, they welcomed us in to, to run this trial and they've proved to be very successful. And there are a lot of critics when we did that, but the cashless debit card has proved to be a real help to people mm. to get control of their expenditures, uh, to better use the welfare that is made available to them, which is there to help them be able to move ahead and make better decisions for the future. So we're going to trial this with just 5,000 people. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, we'll stop it. And if it does work and it's helping people, well, we'll keep doing it. We'd be silly not to. Absolutely. But it's not university students who may have smoked a joint on the weekend that are going to be tested. It's people in areas where there is high drug use that will be targeted. Well, well this is where we'll start the trial, in particular areas where we, where we know that that's the best place to start with a program like this. Um, and it, it is all about helping people. And, and, and it's an, I mean, drug and alcohol abuse can stop you from getting a job. It can stop you from meeting your mutual obligation requirements. It can stop you from being in a position to make good choices for the rest of your life. And we want to do practical things that help people get over that issue and to be able to have a better future. Now, we understand that you're using national wastewater testing results in order to pick the areas of the country where people are using drugs. So is the government using toilet water to pick where these trials are going to be held? Well, we're an innovative, agile and flexible government <laughs> that looks at all sorts of new ways of a better targeting New ways government. and new waste. <laughs> of, uh, look, you've got to be smart about it. Look, it's, it's not unlike when um, in Victoria, for example, um, what they've introduced a new, basically an empty, empty flat tax for foreign investors. And we've got a similar measure in this budget. And one of the ways you try and work those things out at a state level is, is they go and look and see whether the water's been turned on or whether the electricity's been switched on. And that's a way of, being, of working out you know, whether those flats are being held empty, um, which means that's a, that's, a, that's a flat that a student couldn't rent or a family could, could, couldn't rent. And that does put upward pressure on rents, particularly in, in, in Melbourne. I mean, vacancy rates for rental accommodation in Melbourne I mean, people talk about buying homes, and yeah, that's tough, but 30% of people in this country live in homes that are rented. Mm. That's a lot of people, and it's a lot of young people. And in this budget, we also put funding into homelessness support. It used to be temporary, and as Social Services Minister, I renewed that funding for a few extra years, and as Treasurer, I've made it permanent. And I've asked them, and told them, I should say, I'm a little, <laughs> not, you know I'm not that subtle. Um, I've said, I want the money focused on youth homelessness, and domestic violence related homelessness. And I did that as social services minister. We were getting some really good results. Places like Adelaide, for example. When I was in that sector, I was blown away by the innovation of a lot of these not-for-profit organisations. I mean, it's, it's sort of a bit like it is in business. You've got a really hard problem, you've got limited resources, 
people get pretty innovative. And mm. I've found some of those organisations probably the most innovative I've met in private or, or, or not-for-profit sector. Well, we'll get to housing affordability sure. in just a minute. But first up, we've got a question from Twitter. You can send us your questions with the hashtag yeah. ScomoLive. At SatDSF says, why can't we drug test politicians? They take taxpayer money just like people on welfare. And I guess mm. that gets to the heart of what Show me the people... bag, I'll blow on it. Happy, <laughs> happy to. Um... The Treasurer says he's happy to take a drug test, Yeah, everyone. get the swab. <laughs> well, I guess it gets to the heart of what some people are concerned about Caffeine's with Caffeine's probably the only thing you'll find. <laughs> well, I think some people are concerned that people who aren't addicts, there may be you know, recreational users might get picked up in these drug tests. Have you ever... Sorry, sorry recreational users of illicit drugs? Recre like if recreation one one or two time users who maybe did it of, months of, ago uh, illicit of drugs. illegal drugs. Illegal that's drugs. Right. I, I don't give a green light to illicit drugs. Well, Absolutely have you not. ever smoked pot? No. Have you ever used any illicit drugs? No. Would you ever? No. Okay. <laughs> Can I ask you the same question? Yeah, absolutely not. There we go. All right, let's... There you go. Have you ever? I would love to take a drug test. Let's do it sorry? right now. Would you like oh, to Oh, sorry, get... you didn't answer that question. Okay, fair enough. You can ask me, but anyway. Okay, well, let's, <laughs> let's move on to housing affordability. So one of the core things in your budget plan this week was yeah. housing affordability. Young people can take 30 mm. grand and put it into their super accounts to help them save for mm. a deposit. Mm. A lot of people, uh, young people out there who earn fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000, they're saying this isn't realistic for us. We don't have that money. Money, we're already paying tax, we're already putting money into super. Mm. How can they stump up the money to afford a housing deposit? Well, the government uh, can't create money that isn't there. Absolutely. I mean, what we are doing, though, is for those who are in a position to save and are saving, is we want to give them a tax cut on their savings. Yes. Um, I mean, there are other proposals uh, which other people have put forward, and, and that was the you know the redirecting of compulsory superannuation and, and things like that. Well, you know, that that, that is a, a topic that's been debated, but what we've decided to do, in, and the Labor Party strongly opposes doing that, uh, what we've said is um, we will allow people who are salary sacrificing already, but they're just putting the money in a bank account, which won't get as much earnings that they'll get in the superannuation mm. fund, and you pay more tax. So we're, we're taking what people are already doing and making it go 30% further. Are you saying that 30 grand is all people really need? Because if no, you, I'm if saying you, that's... Well, how much do you think someone would need realistically a first homeowner in the bank account to well, put a deposit down? It all down? depends where you're buying a house. If you're buying one in Sydney or you're buying one in Tamworth, if you're buying mm. one uh, in Bunbury uh, or in Hobart or Launceston or in Townsville. But if it, you take 20% of a deposit that you need mm. and you say 30 grand, that, that can only afford something less than $200,000. Well, so it also if you're trying to buy... Couple. So, Absolutely. So, so that's two, 60. That, that's 60. Yeah. We're not saying this creates your deposit. Yeah. We're simply saying that you're already making savings and we'll make it go 30% further. Mm. And now so got, that is a help. You've got two daughters. You live in Cronulla. I, I think the average house right. price in Cronulla is around $2 million. The apartments are around $700,000. Would your kids be able to afford to buy there? Well, we'll find out down the track. And, uh, and, and you know, my kids are... A fortunate to live in a, in a wonderful part of the world and we, we think it's the, the best part of the country but every every part of the country says Hashtag the same blessed. thing yep. Hashtag <laughs> blessed, that's right now look it's a wonderful part of the country and, and this is a challenge facing all young people mm. uh, in Sydney it's been that way for ages I mean I grew up in a home um, we lived with my with my great aunt and we shared a home with her. Uh, my, my dad was a, was a police officer and my mum worked in admin um, when, when we went to school. Um, there wasn't childcare support back then. And do you these think sorts young people things. are being too picky about where they want to buy? I, I think young people do have it tough. I mean, yes, it is true that these days, uh, the Labor Party brought in, um, you know, hex fees uh, right at the end of when I was at university. And, and they pay that today. They pay compulsory superannuation today. Um, that wasn't the case, um, you know, for my parents' generation. So, mm. you know, things have changed. 
And I think there genuinely are a lot of cost pressures on younger people today than existed in the past. But there are also tremendous opportunities at the same time that the current generation has that previous generations didn't. So I think intergenerational equity is a, is a fair income conversation. I mean, in last year's budget, um, I was attacked for the changes I made to superannuation. Now, those superannuation changes meant that for a decade, uh, people with you know, uh, superannuation balances over $1.6 million each paid no tax mm. on the balances above those earnings. I didn't think that was actually fair <laughs> to younger people, people going through the system now, because there'll be more people of pension age in the future, and the generation coming through now will be paying the taxes to support that. And so the changes we made to the pension assets test last in the in the in the 15 16 budget which i put forward into that budget which i know i've been criticized for but you know i stand up for the policies that i believe in and i've implemented and then superannuation the next year that was all about trying to level it up particularly for younger people coming through are going to be born with those hit with taxes to pay for what will be services for a growing and aging population all right we've got one more question from twitter it's about a budget measure that was actually announced last week it's about yep. universities yep. so the plan is that university fees will be going up over the next four years someone asks if i am well, someone the share of the, the share of the debt uh, the share of the cost of the education that's right for and the repayment threshold will be and the, and, the, and the repayment threshold will be brought down yeah. that, that both of those are true but the taxpayers will still be paying for more than half on That's average right. the cost of every single student's education. So the question is, if, uh, if I'm a university student looking to start a six year degree next year, mm -hmm. should I be worried that after the four year plan, which has been mm -hmm. announced, uh, has passed, at the end of my degree, will, def will fees go up again? Basically the question is, what's gonna happen after the next four years? Will fees go up in another four years time? Well, no, we have no plans for that. I mean, what we've simply done in this budget is funded the promises that we've made for um, the funding for the, the Gonski 2.0 schools mm. program, the funding for hospitals, the guaranteeing of Medicare. We've made specific provisions uh, with the, the Medicare levy uh, to ensure that we can fully fund the National Disability Insurance Scheme once and for all, end all the political fights over that. Uh, so what we've put in this budget, we've funded, we've made affordable, we can do it. Yeah. Uh, the, the only risk I would have thought uh, to, to people down the track would be if spending got out of control or people made promises they couldn't pay for. And the only people I know who are at risk of doing that is the Labor Party. Okay, so if you're Treasurer in four years' time, will you make a guarantee to uni students that fees won't go up again in four years? Well, you keep saying fees are going up. Um, what the, Sorry, and that, that's so not there, right. That, that there will be a change in the amount of either whether it be the proportion that they pay or mm. any changes to the amount that it costs them yeah. to go to university. Yeah. All, all things being equal, if, if we continue to keep on the budget track that we're on, uh, there, there, would, there would be no need for that. Okay, my final question to you is about a man you mentioned yesterday who yeah. uh, you said was Australia's greatest treasurer, Peter Costello. Yeah, one of his famous policies was that people should have three kids. One for themselves, one for their partner, yeah, one and short. one for the country. You are one short. I'm one short. Do you think that uh, Australians should still be popping out three kids? Are you going to pop one out for the country? Well, um, oh, you may not know, but um, our, our, our journey having our two kids was um, quite a, a journey of blessing. We had tremendous difficulties, and like many, many, many young people have. And, and to those who are going through that or watching this at the moment, uh, I, I know it's really tough, and, um, and and I hope you'll be blessed in the same way that, that Jenny and I have been. But you know, I, I, there is no greater blessing in life than your kids. There isn't. It, it is it is the most joyous part of my life and Jenny's life. Uh, the girls were with me the other the other day, my, my two little ones, and uh, they just have them there, beaming their smiles back at me the other night. Um, you know, it was just really special. But that's you know that's a, 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 
a gushing dad talking, um, which which I am, and I think all dads are, particularly when they have girls. Um, well, Treasurer, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us live on BuzzFeed News, and I think I say on behalf of both of us, let's go Sharks. <laughs> Hop up, Cronulla. <laughs> I like the warmer. I like the warmer. If you want to watch the video and the very smiley Scott Morrison, he was very smiley and very cold. It was very cold when you guys were recording. It was minus something. It was, it was very, cold. very cold. It's up on the BuzzFeed, Ozpol, Facebook and Twitter pages. The bit where he starts talking about toilet water, quite entertaining. He was quite smiley and uh, the smile on his face when he starts talking about illegal drugs, Mark, is worth a look. But what did you think about what the Treasurer had to say? You were there watching on the sidelines. What were your takeouts? Well, I think it was interesting that people were following on at home on their Twitter feeds were really commenting on the fact that toilet water or sewerage was actually the thing that was going to be an indicator of where the government's trial welfare program was going to be targeted. And that's really shocking to a lot of people, I think. They wouldn't actually know that the government has done this national wastewater trials and they can find out where which communities will be the ones that need or required to actually be targeted in this program. Yeah, and I think that the other interesting point that he made was about intergenerational gaps. So he did admit that it is harder for young people now at this stage in their lives than it was for, say, their parents or their grandparents at the same age. And one of the biggest things we've seen in this budget is the, the, the movement of debt from the government bearing a lot of debt and pushing that debt onto households. So for university students, for example, they're going to start life off with a bigger debt and they're going to have to pay their uni fees back sooner. And that's a big problem, household debt and Australia is increasing, unemployment is on the rise, wage growth is really holding steady. It's shit house out here. Hey, mate. That's what people are saying. Are you okay? No. <laughs> there are better days ahead, apparently. Well, to fact check some of the things that Treasurer Scott Morrison said and to get his analysis on budget 2017, here's a man who was named the best treasurer in the world, former Rudd and Gillard government Labor treasurer Wayne Swan. <laughs> We're in the office of Wayne Swan, uh, former treasurer for the previous Labor government. In the last three days, your name keeps popping up in the media over and over again. There's even an incredible uh, portmanteau that this was the Morris Swan budget. Did you write this budget? You know, my father's name was Morris Swan. (laughs) (laughs) Was it really? (laughs) But no, I didn't, and it doesn't bear any relationship to a Labor budget, and it's not certainly one that I would have produced. Then why, then why is you know the Conservative commentary, especially the Australian well, newspaper, have been banging on about how this is something that you would have done, and that's well, why it's the Morris Swan budget? Well, I don't know if anyone can really understand what the Australians are about. <laughs> <laughs> but um, look, it's it's partly the con job that the government's trying to pull, trying to pretend that uh, you know they've changed, trying to pretend that they've got a. Um, you know, a very substantial infrastructure investment program, which they don't. I mean, if there was a big infrastructure program, then that sort of would have, would have had elements of, of a Labor budget. But really, to me, it's just the same old trickle-down. The $50 billion unfunded corporate tax cut sits at its core. The attack on the, the living standards of uh, people through the social safety net is still happening. But they're trying to give themselves a, a bit of a makeover. And uh, in a sense, uh, you know, they, they may have had some some support for that, but it's not true and it's not going to stand up in the light of day. 
So what are the some of the things you like and some of the things you don't like from this budget? Do you like the levy on banks? Oh, guys, I, I support the levy on banks. So anyone who's read uh, my book, The Good Fight, <laughs> will understand that I have a deep appreciation of just uh, what bastards the banks can be. Um, you know, they think that they've got... Uh, a right to permanently, irrespective of any circumstance, have a return on equity over 15% and be among the top 10 or 12 uh, profitable banks in the world. So they always say whatever's happening, whether it's a debate about the path through of the Reserve Bank decisions in terms of rate rises or falls, that they can, um, they can, uh, they can clip the ticket always on the way through. So neither their executives uh, or their shareholders ever lose and the losers out of that are consumers. Do you think that are you worried that there's a possibility the banks could pass on some of? Th- the... There is no question the banks will pass it on. <laughs> That's what's so laughable about um, about what Scott Morrison's going on with. The banks will pass that on. Then why support the bank levy? Well, because it's worthwhile watching it happen. Right. So this is like you're flushing out the banks. Well, the, the banks need to be flushed out. But you know this 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 levy attacks. A super profits tax, which is what it really is, and they're not going to say, um, should have a Royal Commission with it. Yeah, and that's what's so funny because the former Labor government that you worked for got pilloried for the mining super profits tax. Sure. There was a long campaign that arguably removed one Prime Minister. Do you think that there will be a similar ad campaign from the banks when it comes to this? Like, you know, you will have those, um, you have banking sector advertising that's kind of like, this is going to be passed on to you, the consumer. It hurts all of us. Uh, They will go out there and pull every lever they can uh, to get the government to back down. Uh, I I also reject uh, the analogy that it was, um, uh, you know, the super profits tax on the mining industry that uh, resulted in Kevin Rudd's uh, defeat in the party room. It was much, much, much more than that. Can I just also ask, it's interesting because the person who's the figurehead of this potential bank scare campaign is Anna Bly, former Labor Premier. Um, I assume because you're both Queensland Labor people, you're probably quite good friends. What is it like seeing Anna Bly being the spokesperson for the banking sector? Well, I was shocked when she took the job, frankly, absolutely shocked uh, because uh, the, the stated intention was cultural change. Uh, the, the banks on their own, even with Anna Bly, are incapable of cultural change, uh, which is why there is such a strong case for a Royal Commission. Do you think that uh, obviously one of the political strategies behind the banking levy is to quell any calls for a banking Royal Commission, but Labor's not going to let up, are they? No, we're not. But I think what, what the banking levy uh, is about is a smokescreen uh, if you like. So people are saying, oh, gee, we, we don't mind the bank levy. They're super profitable. They're buggers. We don't like them. But on the other hand, they decide they want to put the Medicare levy up on all Australians. Mm, what do you think about the Medicare levy? Well, it, it's certainly not required to fund the NDIS. This is the other great lie uh, at the core of uh, Morrison's budget presentation. The NDIS was fully funded. Uh, by for the, the for 10 Party. years, for the next 10 years? Yeah, fully, fu- fully funded. He's, pre- he's presented no convincing evidence that there's some sort of shortfall. So the Prime Minister then goes into the House yesterday and says that there was never any money provided. We increased the Medicare levy. It's in a locked box. It's been building up since it first applied in 2013. Uh, and, uh, the, the, and the whole design of it was published in the, in, the, in the budget papers. So the graphs are there about where the money was coming from over a 10-year period, both for Gonski uh, and for the NDIS. But what they want to do is they want to, they want to slap a tax on everyone 
attendance for the NDIS because that's the only way they could do their budget repair and spend on all the other boondoggles that they've decided to spend on. So you know, this is a very big spending and big taxing government, but it's doing it in all the wrong ways and generally in mm. all the wrong places. So do you think that the the money that was allocated by the Labor government to fund the NDIS, do you think that that's been ripped out or do you think that... It's still sitting there. It's it, sti- so it's never moved. And the amount that they've said that they're People dedicating- have been paying it since 2013, every fortnight, every month. Even, so when, the Medicare- even when the NDIS wasn't established, even when there are just a few trials around the country, mm. every Australian who paid the Medicare levy was paying that into a fund. And for the Prime Minister of Australia to get up yesterday and say there was nothing in place... You know, is just indicative uh, of how um, uh, of how desperate he is, mm. uh, and and how easily uh, their lies are propagated throughout the community. One of the things that we spoke to the treasurer about earlier was intergenerational debt, and he admitted that for young people today, it is harder than it would have been for their parents or grandparents at the same period in their lives. And uh, one of the reasons, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is the government shifting debt from their coffers onto households or onto onto people. So, for example, university students are going to have to pay bigger fees and they're also going to have to pay, pay a bigger percentage of their fees. Well, well just, 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 just imagine if I'd been treasurer on Tuesday night and I'd hidden the gross debt figure in a footnote. I mean, what would have happened? I mean, one year, accidentally, we left the deficit out of the budget speech, but it was in big numbers in all the budget papers, <laughs> mm. everywhere it should have been. It was just an accident, right? And we got pinged by Laurie Oakes for that. And, and, ju- this, and just to this, explain this to Alice... Crew, that, just that, to was, that, was, that happened and it was very uncomfortable, but it was, you know, it was just a mistake. But these guys deliberately hid the gross debt figure in a footnote in the budget papers... And got away with it. Yeah, just and just to explain to our listeners, there are two things we talk about when we talk about deficit and debt. Deficit is the yearly um, overborrowing that the government does, and every year the deficit goes on to the pile of debt that yeah. we have as a nation. And you're saying that Matisse Cormann and Scott Morrison actually buried that gross national right. debt figure. And what was it? It was seven hundred. Seven hundred billion plus billion. Yeah, right. So right. we we actually yeah, are have overborrowed seven hundred plus billion. No, but see, look, let, let's be very clear about this uh, good debt and bad debt. During the global financial crisis, we went into deficit to save jobs and to save businesses, to stop businesses going to the wall, to stop capital destruction, to stop the destruction of our labour force. And they said that was going into debt for bad reasons. Now they, now they turn around and say, oh, because we've got a bit, of a, you know, a bit of a deficit problem and a bit of a debt problem, we better have some good debt. Mm. But when the lives of people were on the line, that was bad debt. And it just shows you how, how desperate they really are. Um, essentially, I reckon they got about a week or two out uh, from the budget and they suddenly found that they had a lot of spending, they didn't have any saves, and that's when they concocted their, their bank levy uh, and, uh, and their increase in the Medicare levy. But th- this is from a government that always said we didn't have a revenue problem, we had a spending problem. Can they've I... confirmed they have a revenue problem mm. and they've got a spending problem. Can I ask you as a former treasurer... How late are decisions being made about the budget? Are you making them the night before? Well, or, I mean, it has to go to the printers, so... Well, I can tell you about the 2014 budget that they completely stuffed up because mm. I, I do know a lot about that. So many of those nasties, which subsequently became the zombie measures, were inserted in that budget at a meeting on the Friday 
prior to the budget. So that's why the, the paperwork for this 2014 budget was all over the shop and ratty and horrible and nothing added up. And well, there were a few errors in there. And well, different, well, a different few. I, I mean, more than, <laughs> more than a few. And, I, mean, and, I mean, just the, the well, printed booklets to budget, the press release. Well, basically, in that they dispensed with, you know, uh, very significant sections of the budget papers altogether. <laughs> just, just have never appeared. For example, they no longer published the impact uh, on, the, on the incomes of people at different levels like we're used to of all the changes. Those tables are gone. You know why? Because the tax burden on lower income earners has gone up quite substantially. So a lot of that paperwork has gone. So I don't know uh, this time uh, whether they had uh, a failure of process as they had in 2014, which was just disastrous. They thought they were so good they didn't have to have the expenditure committee uh, meeting all the time. You know, meetings didn't happen. I mean, I've had all this feedback about what happened then. But this one has got all the hallmarks uh, of them getting to a point where they couldn't resolve what they were doing. I mean, hence you had, you know, only a couple of weeks out, the Treasurer saying, set a piece of the budget is going to be a housing package. Well, that just turned out to be a piffle. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. Didn't it, right? Uh, so, so essentially, th- th- there must have been a lot of lateish decision making, really big decisions, very hard to do them as late as the last Friday, mm. and very risky because you don't then really uh, you can't go through your risk assessment of what can go wrong. And but and it certainly see, got they the look also of- strangely, a lot of the big announcements were made in the lead up to the budget. There wasn't much left to be found out on Tuesday. Oh, no, I think there was. I, th- I think the, the massive spending um, uh, all came out on Tuesday. I mean, yes, they, they pushed out the, you know, the, the, the really harsh schools, stuff. Schools, Schools and universities. Um, but I, that wasn't that far before the budget came down. Uh, but, um, you know, the, 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 I, I still think it was still a relatively later opera- operation. Uh, last week on the podcast, we had Chris Bowen, who is the current Labor uh, shadow treasurer, and one of the things we talked about was the Buffett rule. This is something that you've been going on a lot about with some of your colleagues in caucus, which is about paying, a, making millionaires and people who earn a lot of money pay a minimum amount of tax because at the moment they're getting away with it. This is what Chris Bowen said, saying that they're not going to go ahead with the Buffett rule. Labor isn't. For example, a lot of charities rely on donations from rich people. That's just a fact. You might not like it. I might not like it. A lot of universities too. It's one of the things you have to consider. The other ones are startups, investing in startups, which in many cases make a loss that they claim as a tax deduction. What do you think about that? What do you think about Chris Bowen well, ruling it out and saying... Well, because- I, don't think, I don't think it's the end of it. Uh, I think it's a discussion that's going to happen uh, in the Labor Party. I mean, I've sp- said a lot about uh, tax, both corporate tax company tax and uh, an individual income tax. So I'm not uh, obsessing about one particular element of that. I think there's a whole lot of reforms that we need to do. And the fundamental problem that exists in the tax system bedevils both forms of tax. And that is that what people pay, that is the effective rate, uh, is nothing like the nominal rate that they're supposed to pay. So if you're a company, tax, if you're a company, your rate's supposed to be 30 cents in the dollar. We know the effective rate for everyone is only 24 cents in the dollar. We know that a third of all companies in any one year are not paying any tax. So, you know, this notion that we've got to have a corporate tax cut for people who actually aren't even paying the 30 cent rate is nonsense. The truth is that highly profitable companies invest here irrespective of what the tax rates are. And the truth is also many of them have very low rates because they're involved in aggressive minimisation or evasion. So... Uh, if we're going to fix that problem in the tax system, we're going to do a lot of repair, uh, and uh, you know that will involve a, a series of measures. Ditto uh, in the personal income tax system. So Chris says, uh, 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 with some validity, that one of the principal elements that takes that effective rate below the nominal rate is use of negative gearing, and uh, big tick 
uh, to the team who, who, who did that for the last election. A very, very substantial political and economic reform. But I don't know uh, whether uh, all of those other arguments uh, are sufficient to knock over a Buffett rule or not, and I'm going to engage in the policy discussion uh, because I think there are, there are two key areas if we're going to combat what is um, you know, uh, a, real, a real drift in this country to greater levels of inequality and less social mobility. And the two key areas for that are getting our tax system much more progressive and, secondly, uh, getting some bargaining power back for our workforce so we can get wages moving again. They're the two things that I think really are needed. And in terms of the, in terms of the workforce, uh, you mentioned before there are the high rates of underemployment, especially young people, youth unemployment is high as well, especially in yeah. rural and regional parts of the country. The government have introduced a lot of welfare measures, but none of these welfare measures are job creation. No, they're all, or, they're all punitive and they'll do nothing to... And there are a lot of punishments issue. in there as well. Issue. So what what does, what can, what can needs to be done in order to get jobs for young people or sure. to get young people young people out of the kind of welfare cycle that they're in? Well, what we're not seeing in the aggregate economy is a return of private capital investment and that's one of the reasons why demand is weak. The most fundamental thing you can do in the first instance to, to lower levels of unemployment is to get demand up right across your economy. Uh, and I think... Uh, given that the, the, the private sector is in this zone where it p would prefer to take short-term returns through share buybacks, higher executive salaries and not necessarily investing long, I think there's a, a much stronger argument now for a greater public sector role in lifting demand to, 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 before we get that private investment kicking in. And secondly, I think a much more direct role for the public sector in ensuring that people in particular areas of high unemployment get jobs. We're sitting in a backbench office today and you sound fired up, more fired up than most MPs we speak to. Is Wayne Swan running again in the next election? <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not going to buy into that because I haven't taken that decision. <laughs> but uh, when I when I decided not to uh, uh, return to the front bench, I said I really wanted to get involved in issues that I was passionate about. You might recall um, I got hung, drawn, and quartered for a couple of speeches I gave in 2012: the zero one percent, the power of vested interests in Australia, the, the Springsteen speech, mm. and others which just basically said, let's not go down the American road. Let's actually keep the essence of what makes Australia such a fantastic place to live uh, and, and, and to grow. Uh, and that's what I've been doing. I've done it through my work with the Centre for American Progress. I'm doing it through work with Chifley, the Australia Institute and, and people like Per Capita. So I'm doing the things I want to do and I'm always passionate about my electorate. I love being an MP and I've got a great place that I represent. And if Labor win at the next election, could you see yourself coming back to the front bench? I can't in any world see myself returning to a Parlor sec to the Treasurer? <laughs> <laughs> You've obviously got so much experience though that Labor, that institutional memory would serve Labor in a Bill Shorten government. Would you not want to be taking a portfolio? Look, my, my view is that we've, we've got a new generation of people coming through. Uh, and they're all good people. You know, when you look at this parliament, you know, it's it's us and daylight in terms of the other side. Uh, you know, the, the resurgence, you know, the, the refreshing nature of the different type of people that we've got into our parliament over three or four elections now is, is a bit like the time when, when, when I came in. And uh, in 93, we had a big surge of people. A lot of people came in. Um, I, I think the party's in pretty good hands here. And, I, and I, I'm happy to help people, but I, I'm not trying to relive my previous life. Yeah, what about your mate, Kevin Rudd? He's running around the world feeling as though... I feel like he wants to relive his previous life. Yeah, it looks like it, doesn't it? <laughs> when you saw him at the Trump dinner, did you think, what are you doing, Kevin? No, no, I, I stopped thinking that a long time ago. <laughs> um, we've got a segment... I know what he's doing. Yeah, <laughs> right. What, what do you think he's doing? 
I'm just trying to be the center of attention. He loves it. <laughs> We've got this uh, segment called Gallery Whispers on our podcast where we talk about rumors that we've heard around the gallery. And one of the things before coming here to do this interview, they said the senior veteran uh, uh, journalist said, well, Wayne Swan, for lunch every day, he eats a cheese sandwich with the crust cut off. Not true. Not true at all. There's no, a Caesar salad on I was about the table. To say, because your, you sta- your staff had just walked in and actually dropped a Caesar salad right in front of you. <laughs> well, you might have noticed that I'm, I'm a lot fitter. Yeah, really, are you? Yeah, a lot fitter and, uh, and, I, and hopefully a lot healthier. I mean, it, when, when did you, you eat a lot of cheese sandwiches, though? I, I did, Just yeah. going back to that, but you when, did. You yeah, did. But when and you, you have get, the crust removed. But, no, never. Never I, had the I crust, like crust Okay, you do Whoever like said that has defamed me. Yeah. Okay, you are being... Alternative facts from the Guardian there. When you have six years such as we had, six of the most... Uh, difficult economic and political sort of circumstances a party could face in government, mm. GFC, leadership issues and so on, uh, it wears you down. Uh, and you really do need to um, you know, take some time to, uh, you know, Recharge. smell the roses. Smell the roses. <laughs> the title of the podcast, our podcast is called Is It On?, which is obviously a reference to leadership spills. Yeah. What do you think? Having, having been through a few spills yourself, is it on anywhere in Parliament, Labor side, their side? I've been betting since the end of last year that Abbott's coming back, and I haven't changed my mind. Really? Abbott's on the way back. Yeah. What about Alba? Is he on the way forward? (laughs) Bill's doing really well. Bill's doing really well. That's such a good diplomatic answer. (laughs) Thank you so much, Wayne Swan. Swan, Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I like Big Wama. I like Big Wama. I like Big Wama. Mark, you know I love a fun fact. Allegedly. And how fun is the fact that Wayne Swan's father's name is Morris Swan? Yeah. Do you yeah. think that News Corp know and should I tell them? Yeah, Judith, <laughs> Judith Sloan from the Australian newspaper, I think, thought she was being so clever when she came up with Morris Swan. And it turns out that Wayne Swan's father's name is Morris. It's a beautiful world. So next time you see Morris Swan, just remember. Just remember. There is a, there is a Morris Swan. Morris Swan. <laughs> and he's Wayne Swan's father. <laughs> Now, uh, Wayne Swan's office, just really Super quickly. Super cool. It's so Super cool. cool. Uh, there's a poster of the Eagles. There was a poster of Bruce Springsteen. I did see a couple of Bruce Springsteen CDs, mm. CDs lying around. Uh, and, a, and a sneaky pic of him hanging out with Barack Obama. And on the other wall, hanging out with French President Francois Hollande. Socialism. I think socialism is coming back in a big way in 2017. <laughs> just watch out. That's a pin that comment by Master S- Stefano. Socialism is the new punk. <laughs> okay, well, it's now time for Bin Juice. That's a segment where we take a story that we don't think has gotten enough media attention this week. We pull it out of the bin, we wipe off the juices, and we give it to you here. Mark, what is your budget bin juice? Alice, my budget bin juice this week is about the foreign aid budget. I know. A very sexy topic. <laughs> that's what people say. They love talking about foreign aid, but. It was very sneaky this week because when you walk into the budget lockup, for people who don't know, you walk past this long table with just piles of paper. There's probably about 20 piles of paper and each one, each pile sort of indicates a department of the government trying to put a media release out where they talk about some of the headline figures. And I picked up the foreign affairs one and it sort of talked through some of the things that uh, Julie Bishop would be, you know, wanting to uh, highlight in the budget. And I think it was the fifth paragraph of the media release talked about the fact that foreign aid budget was going up, which is great. You know, $3.8 billion to $3.9 billion next year. And then the year after that, it was going up to $4 billion. But there's just one sneaky, sneaky that the foreign aid department was doing. Well, 
after the first two years of foreign aid increases, there was actually going to be a freeze put on the foreign aid budget for two years. And how much were they going to save from that? $300 million. So it's effectively a $300 million cut from the foreign aid budget. And I ran up the stairs to where all the boffins are. So these are the bureaucrats, the diplomats, the, the people who are heads of departments that you can actually, as journalists, go up to at any point in the budget lockup and ask them apolitical questions. So you go up to them and say, uh, where is this figure? And can you explain to me how this works? It's probably one of my favourite bits of the budget lockup because uh, you actually get access to all of these amazing bureaucrats who have spent so much of their year putting together the budget and they give you really straight answers quite often. And I said, mm. where's this 300, is $300 million being cut from the foreign range budget? And they said, oh, yes, it's being repurposed and being diverted to other priorities. Now, when I asked, well, what are the priorities? So you're cutting $300 million from foreign aid budget. Where is it going? And they say, well, you know, it's not been... It's not been allocated yet. But it turned out the day before in the Australian newspaper, they had already reported the fact that the foreign aid budget was getting cut... And some of it was going to be used on terrorism and security issues. So not only is Australia a very wealthy country and not only do we exist in a part of the world that needs a lot of development funding, especially in the Pacific Ocean, Mm. we're not only cutting $300 million over four years, but we're doing it in a way where we're funneling that money into things that we A, don't know that much about or B, Security issues, which has a lot of people out there like charities and Oxfam and World Vision, has a lot of people very, very upset. And the story that I wrote about this didn't get very many views, which is the reason why I brought it as my bin juice. Very serious, very, <laughs> very big issue. How to get more clicks. How to get Create more clicks. a segment called bin, bin juice on a podcast. So speaking of, that's my bin juice. That's my bin juice, Alice. Australia's cutting $300 million in foreign aid. What is your bin juice this week. Okay, my bin juice, I just wanted to quickly touch on uh, something I talked about earlier with the Treasurer, which is about the 5,000 people on New Start and Youth Allowance who are going to be drug tested for illegal substances and if found uh, to be on drugs, then they will have, uh, they'll be put on a cashless card instead of uh, just getting their welfare money deposited into their bank account. Now, we know the drug testing isn't random. He's confirmed that they're using data and risk profiling and testing toilet water to figure out what locations in the country this will be rolled out in and also how they're going to target the people uh, that they're drug testing for the trials. The government are saying that they're doing this measure to, uh, it's not just about saving money, it's actually about helping people who have drug problems, serious drug problems. So I decided to have a chat with a doctor who specialises in drug and alcohol, Mm. who also happens to be the leader of the Greens, Richard Di Natale. Richard Di Natale. Richard Di Natale, Greens leader, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Good to be here. Now, this week for Bin Juice, I was hoping to talk to you as a doctor and the Greens leader about the government's controversial plans to drug test thousands of young people who are applying for Centrelink. Uh, They're testing them for illegal drugs. They could have used the drugs within 48 hours or they could have been in their system for longer than that. And if they test positive, they'll be put on a cashless debit card. As a doctor, what are your thoughts on this policy? Well, firstly, as a human being, I think it's disgraceful. I can't believe that this is a government that's deciding that the government's got a role to step in, round people up and to force them to undergo drug testing just because they're accessing a government service. And, um, you know, I think it's a huge violation of people's individual liberties and we're going to do everything we can to stop it. Look, as a doctor, it's just not going to work. In fact, it's going to make the problem worse. 
So there's a couple of things here. I mean, there's firstly, I don't think anybody should be punished because they uh, happen to go uh, away on a weekend, maybe smoke a joint or pop a pill. Um, where does government think we need to draw the line? They've got We've got people getting drunk, um, clogging up emergency departments, um, causing all sorts of untold harm. Why isn't that a focus? I mean, it's just a complete double standard. But more importantly, if you're worried about addiction or dependence, this doesn't work. Like the whole punish people for um, having a drug problem doesn't work. Being addicted to a substance is a chronic relapsing condition by definition. That's the medical diagnosis. So people who come in, and I was, was a drug and alcohol doctor, they'd often come in, they'd come in for some help, you'd get them through a program, things wouldn't go well, something might happen in their life, and they'd relapse. That's the nature of drug addiction. And it would often take a number of attempts before somebody was able to go through and um, be clean. Now, are you going to punish everybody every time they fall into a hole or have a problem? And, of course, the other thing is to be addicted to a drug, um, it's hard work. Like, there's no such thing as taking a drug and suddenly being addicted to it. People take, have to take it often, regularly. It often comes at a huge cost. It can come at the cost of your marriage, your family, your house, your job. Um, you can be living on the street. Now, if all of those things aren't enough to stop someone from using the drug, why on earth does a government think that somehow saying, well, we're not going to give you a payment is going to mean that you'll suddenly stop taking drugs? It's cruel. It's only there to punish people, not to actually help them. If you really wanted to help someone, you'd make sure the treatment was available. So the worst thing about this is, of course, they're going to um, punish you uh, if you use a drug and then they say, of course, well, that's so we can get you into counselling. But there's not enough treatment beds mm. available. It takes two. Uh, you have to test positive twice before you're put on any kind of treatment plan. And then it sounds from the brief details that we have that once you're on a treatment plan and you're on the cashless card, you'll be on it for two years until the end of, or until the end of the trial. So the well, trial will be two years. That's right. And that's part of, I mean, there's obviously a lot of detail that we need to unpack here. One of the things we're concerned about is they say it's random, but we're worried that they're actually using data to profile people. Absolutely. So the government have described it as random, but from what was in the budget papers yesterday, it says that the three locations, which they haven't yet named, will be based on demographic data and focus on areas with high drug use based on information from the ABS and the CSIRO, and that the people won't be random either. They'll pick the people on data-driven profiling tools, which essentially means that they'll be looking at people as they come in to claim welfare and making superficial judgments about whether or not these people have substance abuse issues and then putting them through the rather humiliating process of drug testing them. Do you think that a better system would be if you see someone you think has a drug problem to intervene earlier rather than make them Look, of sit course, these tests? Of course. I mean, the notion that you can force someone into treatment who doesn't want to go into treatment is failed everywhere. So what you want to do is pick, pick this stuff up early, give people the option and the treatment pathway so that they know that helps ready, encourage them into treatment. But if someone wasn't, doesn't want to go through a treatment program, nothing the government does is going to help that. All it does is it punishes that person. So we know there are different models that people look at when it comes to assessing whether someone's um, ready to go through treatment. But until they've made that decision themselves... 
you know, the heavy-handed government or indeed you know, any other member of the community isn't going to force someone into treatment. I worry about the profiling. What does that mean? Does that mean Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are going to be, bear the brunt of this? Um, does it mean they're going to m- match your records and, and look to see if you've actually attended a particular service? I don't know what that means, but it, it should be a cause for alarm for every, any citizen in the country. I just think what the, the precedent this sets is if you're somebody who wants to get access to a government service, that could be GP services, it could be going to university, it could be someone on the pension. I mean, where do you draw the line? Why is this simply something that's targeting individuals who through no fault of their own might not be able to get a job? The reason we have unemployment in Australia is because there are more people than jobs. Uh, it's often not the fault of individuals if they can't find employment and they shouldn't be punished simply because they have a problem with drug use. Now, you're going to be looking into whether it's actually legal for the government uh, to do drug testing in this kind of capacity at Centrelink. Are you also worried about people having a flag on their system, uh, the flag on their profile on the system that says has tested positive for a, for a drug test absolutely. that could potentially stay with them? A- absolutely. So one of the key things, and we're having this debate when it comes, for example, to the electronic health record, is making sure that the privacy of the individual's maintained. And, uh, you know, somebody who hasn't committed a crime, who then has this thing hanging over their head, what's it going to do to their chances of getting a job? So, you know, if you're applying for a job uh, in a government position, a government department, Will they have access to this information? Will this have some bearing on whether you're able to get the job or not? The government hasn't thought this through. I think what they've realised, what they think is, look, this appeals to some of the people who might vote for them. Look, I get the impulse that some people think, well, we should be doing everything we can to help someone who uses drugs and drug testing and treatment should be part of it, but it's just going to make the problem worse. How do you think this will go in the Senate, these measures? I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. Labor have not indicated their opposition to it yet. Um, in fact, they were given the opportunity to say they'd knock it off, and they haven't. I know Jackie Lambie's indicated lukewarm support for it and said it should be extended. I know the reaction is, oh, well, politicians should do it on themselves. My, do you think we should be drug testing politicians? I don't think anyone in the country should be drug tested. Okay. And, and frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if half of the people in this joint failed anyway. <laughs> Richard Denitali, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. I like the woman. I like the woman. I like the woman. I like the woman. That was Greens leader and Dr. Richard D. Natale. Now, Mark, we're going to keep reporting on what's happening with this drugs policy because I think it's left a lot of people outraged. Um, But my, uh, my, my, my big question is, if you test positive... For an illegal substance, mm-hmm. does it leave a permanent flag or mark on your Centrelink file? So will people, anytime you go to access welfare, will something pop up saying this person has tested positive for illegal drugs? Say you test positive for any of your 20-year-olds and then you go off welfare and then you have a job for a couple of decades and then you need to get back on welfare because you lose your job later in life. Will something pop up and say, hello, this person has tested positive for marijuana. That's a good question that you should ask the social services minister. I'm going to. I'm going to find <laughs> out. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Or for is it on? I want to say a huge 
Thank you to our producer, Nicholas Ray, Nicola Harvey, Richard James Lane, Sainty, Peter Holmes, and the whole pod team. Thank you. Also, huge thank you to Twitter, who helped us out with the Scott Morrison interview. Thank you, Twitter. Thank you, Twitter. Thanks, Jack. Now, we want you to get involved and tell us what you'd like us to be talking about on the podcast and also who you'd like us to be talking to. Can I also just do a shout out here quickly and say not just people who are politicians, other people, people who are interested in the political sphere. So let us know. You can go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on or subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a rating and a review. Now, when is the next episode coming out? It is coming out next week. For sure. And yes, Gallery Whispers will be back. Of course. Whispers. Whispers. Mark, finally, the question I ask you every episode, is it on? Because Wayne Swan thinks it is. Yeah. Tony Abbott didn't cluck this week when the budget was handed down. And he is very angry about the Catholic sector when it comes to education funding. So on the on meter, we're at 65% on. 65% on. Yeah. But the budget wasn't received too badly, dot, 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 yet. We'll wait to see the poll bump. Okay, thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Bye, bye, bye.